Hello, good morning. Thank you so much for a lovely warm welcome. How are you doing? You all right? Yes, all working on your suntans this time of the year? Like it? Um, I w wasn't here last weekend, so sorry I missed you all, um, but I was with a a small team um, over working with a church that sits on the border of uh, France, Germany and Switzerland. So uh, that's where I was last weekend and just had an amazing time with them. Uh, we travelled around a little bit. One of the downsides was that very often I didn't know which country I was in and they would test me and I'd get it wrong. But the great thing is they're able to reach a whole group of people that sits in that part of the world. And uh, just so many good things going on there, very much a church of similar values to ourselves. Um, but just one little story, just to sort of whet your appetite, really. Um, we got to meet with um, one young woman who had actually um, escaped Damascus and all the trouble in Syria and made her way across Europe and uh, ended up in Switzerland. Uh, not a believer or anything like that, but she encountered, she bumped into a young woman from the church who was just so warm and welcoming and said, look, come and live in my house with me. So that's what she did. And then just through the course of events, got introduced to the church family and over time realized there's something here. And then she was standing up at the weekend saying, look, I've encountered Jesus uh, through the church and uh, knowing God meeting with me. So really good things, really powerful things going on there. And I'm switching microphones almost seamlessly. Um, so amazing to see what God's, God's doing out there. We also had some fun as well. Um, I got to, uh, me and the family got to stay with uh, one of the leaders in the church there. And uh, we were just got chatting about uh, what it's like to host people in your home all the time. And he mentioned about one time when his mother-in-law came to stay with him. Um, so in the house, it was his wife, him and his mother-in-law, and uh, she was there for about a week or so. And towards the end of the, the trip, um, they were just having a meal together, and uh, the husband, the guy, says, turns to his wife and says, oh, by the way, I, me I meant to say thank you for buying that new toothbrush and leaving it in the bathroom for me, at which point his wife says, I didn't buy you a new toothbrush. And there was this moment of dawning realization as he caught his mother-in-law's eye and realized that for the past week, they had been sharing the same toothbrush together. So... <laughs> Just special little moments like that. <laughs> well, this morning, I know, you, there's no coming back from that, is there? You can't recover that. <laughs> well, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series um, called Incomparable, looking at the character and nature of our God. And um, we really, want, in this series, want to expand our view of who God is. I guess for most of us, we'd say that we want to grow in trust, in faith, in our God, um, but for some of us, that's, that's a bit of a struggle. And I, I wonder sometimes, it's not, not so much that we don't have a big enough amount of faith. We don't have enough faith. It's rather that the God that we're looking to is too small. And so the bigger our view of God gets, well, then the more trust and faith we have in him. Does that make sense? So during this series, we're wanting to widen our perspective on who God is. Um, and ultimately, we're either living me-centered lives or God-centered lives. And we want to increasingly, as we go through this series, orientate our lives around who God is. Uh, last week, Phil spoke superbly on the otherness of God. I watched it during the week. Uh, Wendy's looked at God as shepherd for us. And uh, Simon looked at Yahweh and some of the names of God and all the implications for that. If you missed any of them, do get hold of them. But this morning, I want to look at a different facet uh, to who God is. And I'm going to read a passage and see if you can pick up what aspect of God that we're going to be looking at this morning. But why don't I just pray for us, first of all. And really, when it comes to these topics, we're talking about big themes and big subjects. We don't just need information. What we really want is revelation. And so I'd ask that you listen, not just with open ears, but an open spirit too, 
and allow the Holy Spirit to come and just sort of turn the light bulb on on certain areas we're going to look at today. Is that all right? So I'm going to pray, but as you do, sort of open up the doors of your heart to him as I, as I pray, okay? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are active in this world. Despite all the things that we see on the news and the horrible situations, thank you that there is good news going on right around the planet, that you are rescuing people, changing lives, that you're intervening in the lives like that young woman making her way over from Damascus, Lord God. You are active and at work. Father, would you be active and at work as we read your word today? Would you open up our hearts to understand you more? Would our perspective of you broaden and widen that we might follow you more closely, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, brief passage we've got here is from Matthew chapter 3, and see if you can figure out what aspect of God we're going to be looking at this morning. It says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I wonder, did you get it? This is one of the key texts in the Bible where we get to see all three members of the Trinity on the same page, as it were. And what I'd like to do this morning is just to literally just lift the lid on this this wonderful doctrine of the Trinity and what it means for us this morning. But as I start, I'm afraid I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Um, The bad news is, is that the Trinity is a complex theological topic, which if I'm honest, I don't fully understand. But the good news is you shouldn't worry, and you shouldn't worry for two reasons. Number one, when it comes to not knowing what I'm talking about, I actually have quite a lot of experience. Uh, I like to to think of myself as a professional. Um, I once tried to explain the offside rule in football to my boys, uh, and I was halfway through and then realized I didn't really know what I was talking about. But the good news is I didn't allow that to stop me. I just kept plowing on regardless, saying words as they came out of my mouth. And I find I do this quite a bit. My boys will come to me and say, Dad, how do nuclear power stations work? And I say to them, well, you get some plutonium and some marmite, you mix it all together, and lo and behold, you have nuclear power. Uh, But the second reason you shouldn't worry, the second reason you shouldn't worry is that the Trinity is a wonderful biblical mystery which this side of heaven no one can fully understand. So it's not just me. But the point is, that doesn't mean to say that we can't learn something from beholding it. Let me try and illustrate. Uh, When I was 21, so fairly recently, um, I went with a team out to Brazil, and we were helping to build the first story of an orphanage near Sao Paulo. And as part of the trip, we got to travel around a bit, and we got to go to this amazing place that you'll see on the screen behind me. It's known as Foz do Guaçu, or the Iguaçu Falls. And these falls are absolutely massive. They're they're taller than Niagara Falls and twice as wide. And I remember as we approached it, you you feel the waterfall before you see it because there's this deep bass rumble that has like a percussive effect on your chest so you can actually feel it. And then as you come through the jungle canopy, you see the waterfall. And the closer you get, the more and more deafening the roar becomes. Until it reaches a point where you can't hear one another speak as you stand before it. I tell you, it's truly breathtaking. 
There are exotic birds that are flying through the air. And because of the spray coming off of the waterfall, there are rainbows everywhere. Now, as I stood there and watched this waterfall, I couldn't possibly understand all about the waterfall. I didn't know where the river came from or where it went next. I couldn't take in the vast sweep of the waterfall. It's over a mile and a half wide. I certainly couldn't calculate the weight of water traveling over it, uh, much less understand the light refraction that creates the rainbows. And I certainly don't have a clue about the physics of fluid dynamics and how the water travels. But as I stood there, I could behold a little bit of its wonder. And I could be impressed by the awesome sight that I had, the immensity of it all. In the same way, we can't fully understand God. But we can behold him and get a little bit more revelation as to what he's like. We can't fathom the depths of him, but the closer we get to him, the more we're changed. And I hope your heart, like mine, wants to be increasingly changed by him. And so the Bible talks about God being three distinct persons and yet one God. It says in Genesis, right from the start here, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Hebrew word for God is Elohim. Um, but the, the, that's, a, that's a plural noun, but it's also then used with a singular verb. So we have the plural and the singular going on in the same sentence. Later on in the chapter, verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image. So it's plural again. So we see that God isn't just one, he's plural. So therefore, right in the very first chapter of the Bible, we have a clue as to the, the Trinity, where God says, let us do this. So God is three, but he's also one. So for instance, Deuteronomy 6, 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Wayne Grudem, a brilliant theologian, puts it very succinctly using three statements to describe God. He says this, number one, God is three persons. Number two, each person is fully God. And number three, there is one God. God is both plural and singular. Does your brain ache yet? Uh, now, to us, that may not make sense and probably doesn't. So people have tried to explain God by comparing God to other things. So they'll say, for instance, God's a bit like an egg. Uh, you've got the shell, you've got the yolk, and you've got the white. So it's sort of three in one. Except that a yolk isn't the whole egg, just like the white and the shell aren't the whole egg. And I'm not really sure that comparing the God of the universe to an egg really helps me with my sense of awe and wonder. You can't really take a created thing and try and use it to explain the creator. You see, the Bible talks about God as being a completely different order of being. It says that he stands outside of time and space. I find it helpful for me to think of it a bit like this. It's, it's a bit like um, a, when you get a comic book, what you have is you have a series of different panels, and each one of those panels represents a point in time, and there's something going on in that panel. It's like we live in one of the panels of the comic book. That's the span of our lives. But God doesn't live in that panel. God stands back from it outside of space and time, and so he can see the beginning and he can see the end. And some of you have stopped listening to me and you're just reading the comic, but that's okay. <laughs> You can read the comic, just don't watch the film of Fantastic Four. None of them are any good. So, so God stands back outside of space and time, and he's beyond our ability to fully understand. We just don't have the mental capacity or spiritual capacity to understand him. It's a bit like 
a cat trying to understand the internet. It's not really going to work out very well, okay? Although this cat does seem to be getting on okay. Or as my wife said, it's a bit like a husband trying to understand a wife. You know, it's just beyond our capacity. No, that's a different issue. Let's not go there. All right. so, so God is beyond us, but by looking at him, we're still changed. And we can't always use logic to try and understand the character and nature of God. Logic runs out for us. Uh, because there's a point where logic is inade- inadequate. I remember when my uh, firstborn son, Noah, was born. And I held him in this, just this tiny little bundle of life. And I realized, I love you with all my heart. And then my daughter was born, another beautiful, tiny little bundle of life. And I thought, I love you with all my heart. Hang on, I love you with all my heart, and I love you with all my heart. The maths doesn't add up here. By the time we got to Zachary, I'd given up worrying about it, and I just love them all with all of my heart. Logic, in the same way, can't fully understand God, but we can be shaped a bit by it. So in this passage, what we see in Matthew 3 is just a wonderful kind of tender moment as if the curtain has been pulled back and we get to see a little bit of the relationship in the Godhead. First of all, there's the voice of the Father, not distant or harsh, but saying these words, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Psalm 103, 13 says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He's like the father of the father in the prodigal son. Full of authority, but also full of compassion too. And that's what we see in this little moment at the baptism. Some of you may remember me sharing a, a while back that when I was little, uh, my brother and I used to do play fights, do bundles uh, with my dad. And uh, what we would do is we would wait until he got in the front door and then from hiding, pounce out on him. A little bit like... Cato in the Inspector Clouseau movies, if any of you remember those. And so we'd, we'd dive on him and try and sort of bundle him to the ground. But the trouble is, uh, my dad has worked to do manual work all his life, and so he's still to this day very strong. Um, so he would, he would um, come in and talk to my mum. Meanwhile, we're trying to bundle him, and he would just sort of fend us off casually with one hand, very rarely even looking at us, but chatting to mum. And then he would go and sit down on the sofa, maybe, and open up the paper, and still we're going for him, and he's just fending us off. Uh, Mum would bring him a cup of tea and everything. And then in the end, he would just finally say, okay, boys, this is it. And he would grab each one of us in one hand and pin us, both of us, to the ceiling. And I'm the oldest one, so I feel like I need to still have the bravado. So I'd be pinned to the ceiling saying to my brother, don't worry, we've got him just where we want him. (laughs) I'd say it was so much fun uh, bundling and play fighting with a dad like that. Because, you see, to us, us small boys... In moments like that, my father seemed to me to be both infinitely strong, but also totally good. And that's what our Heavenly Father is like. There's this sense of power, but power with love. Now, obviously, I know that as soon as I start talking about the fatherhood of God, it it rings bells for us with our earthly fathers. For some of us, our earthly dads weren't a source of safety or comfort, but rather of fear and disinterest. But that doesn't mean to say it has to affect the way you relate to your Heavenly Father. Michael Reeves, another theologian, says this, God the Father is not called Father because he copies earthly fathers. To transfer the failings of earthly fathers to him is quite simply a misstep. Instead, things are the other way round. It is that all human fathers are supposed to reflect him. That's what our Heavenly Father is like. 
But in this little moment in time, we don't just have the Father, but we also have the presence of the Spirit. Uh, perhaps this is the person of God that we tend to have most misconceptions about. It says that he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And we see in this moment a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, showing that Jesus is the anointed king. Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The key thing here is it's the spirit that brings the anointing. He's the one who equips and guides. He's described as our helper, not some disembodied force, but as one who can be known, one who teaches us and reveals truth to us. He's the one, if you like, who can walk alongside us as we travel through life. Um, going back to the time when I was in Brazil, we had um, a young man who was with us for the whole trip, a, a local guy, Brazilian, and uh, his name was Jaume. And uh, he, he really was a rock for us that whole time. He translated for us as a team. Uh, he advised us on where to go, and he advised us particularly on where not to go. Um, he found us places to stay. He got us across borders. He kept us safe when somebody tried to rob us in Rio. Um, he, he took us even into the favelas, the shanty towns that you see on the screen behind you. I, don't, I literally don't think we'd have lasted five minutes in there were we not with him. You see, he acted as our guide in a confusing and sometimes hostile world. He opened doors for us and enabled us to fulfill what we were there to do. In the same way, you're not meant to do life on your own. God's given you a guide to help you in all that you're meant to do. He's the one that will show you where to go in a hostile and sometimes confusing life. He will lead you into all truth, as John 16 says. He will give you peace, John 14. And he will equip you with all you need, 2 Peter 1. So the Holy Spirit is there in this scene too. But lastly, there's also the sacrificial life of the Son. Philippians 2.5 says this, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is there being baptized knowing that he's going to end up at the cross. And his sacrifice, the sacrifice of his life, will be like a bridge from death to life for you and I. I mean, explaining this kind of thing to people, I'll often use the illustration of the Zabruga ferry disaster. Uh, that was 30 years ago this year, and I'm, I'm one that can remember it. So in 1987, um, a, a cross-channel ferry, a, a big ferry, uh, left port, but tragically it left with the bow doors open. And this meant that two miles out to sea, water flooded into the car deck and the whole ferry capsized, tipped up on its side. Inside, you can imagine the, the carnage. It meant that corridors that were once walkways, now all of a sudden, tipped on their side, became massive chasms. And in some cases, too wide for people to cross. There was one group of passengers, a few adults, but, but many children, who were trying to get from where they were to a place of safety. Um, but they came across one of these big corridors, and unfortunately, it was too far for the children to make it across. But fortunately, amongst them was a six-foot-three off-duty police officer called Andrew Parker. This is him up on the screen getting his medal. 
And what they did is he stretched his body across the chasm, the gap, with an adult on one end and an adult on the other end to hold him securely. And then these small children literally crawled across his body to make it to safety. The parallels are obvious. Jesus stretches out his body on the cross in order that we can go from a place of danger into a place of safety, that we can go from death into life. That's what Jesus has come to do in this scene. So we see the wonderful diversity in the Trinity through this passage, but we also see the potential to connect with each aspect of the Father, the Son, and Spirit. So as we start to land, well, maybe we should think about what these things mean to us. How, how can they actually help us? Is this just dry, academic, theological truth, or is it something that can actually help us on a day-to-day basis? Well, I certainly believe the latter. You see, I think the Trinity actually should be a precious doctrine for us, something that really lives with us and means something to us. Let me just, as we close, give you three, three implications of this truth that are wonderful for you and I. The, the first one is this. The Trinity means that love, not power, is the driving force for the universe. See, if the creator is just singular, just one, just one person, then in creating us, his first thing he would have done would have been to have used his power to make a person, and then he can love that person. So power would come first, and then would come love. But because the Trinity exists, because they were loving one another before the creation of the world, it means that love came first, and then out of that love, he exercised his power to create us. Does that make sense? So it means that love, not power, is the dominant force in the universe. So when we hear of terrible atrocities like last night in London or Manchester or wherever, as shocking and horrible as that is, I know that that's not the end of the story. Because I know that love wins in the end. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. This perfectly sufficient God was enjoying company within himself long before anything else happened. But it's worth also noting the contrast. It's not this way with Satan. Satan's all about the one. When he tempts Jesus in the wilderness, he shows his hand. He says this, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan wants and needs to be worshipped. The focus is all on himself. It's a power grab. God's kingdom is completely different. It's all about the giving and receiving of love. The Trinity's focus is on one another. It's fundamentally, totally different. That's why 1 1 Corinthians 13 uh, says what remains, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. It means that love is the dominant force of all. These are, these are weighty things for us. And in our disposable society, we can struggle with the idea of something being eternal. We, we're used to things having a short shelf life. You know, the goldfish you win at the fair. The Pringles once you've taken the lid off. Um, the security officers beaming down to a planet from the Starship Enterprise. All of these things have a, have a limited lifespan. But it's not so with the love of God. You see, the love of God existed long before you and I. It existed before Everest grew. It existed before planet Earth was created. The love of God will keep shining long after the sun has burnt itself out. The love of God towards you is eternal. God will love you for eternity, not because you are good, but because he is. 
The universe may come and go, but God's love is eternal. Second implication is this, uh, that we aren't God's playthings, we're his children. That's what the Trinity means. You see, if God wasn't a Trinity, if there weren't three and just the one, let's be honest, there'd be a real risk of boredom because God would be on his own for eternity. So it might be that he would have created beings in order to keep himself entertained and occupied. But it wasn't that way. The, the Trinity created us as an overflow of his love. He didn't need you and I for his well-being, for his entertainment. So that means that we're not playthings to God, but rather we're born out of the love that's in the Trinity. So we are therefore his children. So uh, just like a fountain might overflow with pure spring water, or the love of a husband and wife will often result in children, so we were made out of the overflow of God's love for you and I. That makes you his child, not his pet, to keep him entertained. He doesn't want to take anything from you because he doesn't need anything from you. Um, Sunday, the 18th of June, is Father's Day. Just thought I'd mention it. Um, I reckon on uh, Saturday, the 17th of June, probably around 5.30, my boys will get together and think to themselves, oh, we better buy Dad a present. Uh, My daughter will have bought my present weeks ago. Uh, and uh, they might go out and might get me a car magazine or some barbecue tongs or something like that. Uh, and the point is they will use their pocket money to do that. But they will use the pocket money that I gave them to buy me a present. See, the thing is, I don't need the car magazine or the barbecue tongs. I could have bought that with the money I had in the first place. But it's good for them to give back to me because it does their hearts good. In the same way, we don't worship God because it's good for for him. He doesn't need anything from us. We worship God because it's good for us. He loves you out of the overflow of his heart, not because he wants to get something from you. And then lastly, the third implication of the Trinity is this. It means that when we work together, we reflect something of who God is. You see, in the Trinity, there's diversity, but there's also unity. Take a look around you. There's diversity in this place. There's no one here quite like you. Some of you, you know, you're convinced of that truth already, but we are are an amazing mix of people from all kinds of different backgrounds. I think it's 17 different nations from every one of us with a unique history and personality makeup. But if we can not just be diverse, but also be unified then we reflect something of what the Godhead is truly like. Psalm 133 says that we're brothers and therefore sisters as well, dwell in unity, the Lord commands a blessing. Why is that? Well, it's because when a diverse bunch of people serve God in unity, then we're beginning to just reflect a little bit of what God is like. So the reason I became a Christian is that not what somebody said from the front, because I sat at the back of the hall and watched how people related to one another at the end of the meeting. And I realized you guys are a radically different bunch of people, and yet you want to connect with one another. And that's what began my journey of asking questions. It's why we do everything in team. Why we have teams on a Sunday, why we send teams overseas rather than individuals. It's why we have teams on the project and teams doing the car parking and teams leading the church. It's because it's an expression of the heart of God and who he is. And if we can learn with one another, bear with one another, if we can serve one another and prefer one another, 
then God will come along and bless what we're doing. Team invites the blessing of Almighty God. God's going to look down and say, look, they're trying to copy me. I'm going to pour my favor out on that. Those of us here um, who are parents, um, when do your kids get ice cream? Is it when they've been squabbling and fighting over whose Lego it is? Or is it on those rare moments when you sort of open the door to one of their rooms and see them just playing really nicely together and your heart melts? You think, oh, great, magnums all round. Which one is it? It's the latter, isn't it? I want to suggest to you that prayer and faith aren't the only weapons in our arsenal. Unity is too. Now that doesn't mean to say that you have to agree with everybody or get along with everybody all of the time. But it does mean a heart commitment to one another. It means that we're going to be on board with one another, supporting one another. It means when Simon stands up and shares about leading Catalyst, we're thinking, right, we're right behind you. We're going to put our prayer weight behind that too. You know, doing church is a bit like synchronized swimming. It doesn't work very well on your own. You have to be with others to do it. Christianity is a team sport. And in my experience, what happens is that many of us look to the left and right and think, I'm different to the people around here. Therefore, I don't belong. But that's not what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, if you're different, therefore you do belong. Because the hand isn't meant to be like the foot. And the, you know, the eye isn't meant to be like the ear. You are different. Therefore, you have a unique contribution to make to this place. And now maybe I'm sort of preaching to the converted because you're all here in church. But in my experience, what tends to happen is when we feel like we're different to those around us, we think maybe I don't fit here. And then we start a journey of retreating backwards. It doesn't begin with a physical stepping back and not attending. It begins with an emotional withdrawal of the heart where you step back and think, I'm not sure I fit here anymore. And so you go from being a participant to being a spectator. Maybe God has us looking this morning at the subject of unity and diversity because he's drawing you back in. He's saying, you are unique, therefore you have a unique contribution here. If you weren't here this morning, then this church family would be missing somebody who looks just like you. And somebody who looks like just like you is going to be uniquely equipped to reach other people outside of here. So as we come into land... I'm not pretending that any of these things are easy or straightforward. The Trinity is a big, complicated subject, but I am saying it's relevant and makes a difference to our lives. The fact that God is a Trinity, not just an individual, changes everything. It means that God doesn't need you, but it means also that he wants you. It means that the eternal force in the universe is love, and therefore every exercise of God's power is motivated by love. And we can trust him completely. And it also means that when we give ourselves to being family together, working as teams, then there's a spiritual synergy and the blessing of heaven will come on it when we work that way. So I hope you can see that the Trinity is a deep, rich, powerful truth that can inform our lives.